take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. As Wade did mention in his prayer, we are continuing our look at this high priestly prayer of Jesus as it's been referred to. And we're going to consider the last section, the last paragraph of this prayer in John chapter 17. Well, in the middle of the 1700s here in this continent, there was revolutionary fervor happening among us. There was rising among the 13 colonies this idea of revolution, that they no longer wanted to be under the tyranny, under the oppression that they were afflicted by because of the colonizer, England, across the pond. And to say that they were weary of that, well, that's an understatement. And they recognized they can do more together than they can do separate. They can do more united than they could do divided. And so the leaders of those 13 colonies came together and they determined to join their resources, to join their energies for the purpose of revolution. And they would refer to one another, this coalition, as the United Colonies. Well, that name would not stick around long because you can't refer to yourself as a colony when you don't want to be under the oppression of a colonizer. So they would have to come up with a new name for this fledgling nation. And they actually took it from a line that Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence. When he wrote this, he didn't write it saying this is going to be the name of this new nation, but it ended up being the name of this new nation. Here's the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. It says this, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. And then the last paragraph of the Declaration of Independence says this, we therefore, the representatives of the United, lowercase u, States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions due in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. It wasn't until about three months later on September 9, 1776, at the Second Continental Congress that they adopted the new name for this fledgling nation, the United States of America. But there on July 4th, 56 patriots affixed their names and they assigned their lives and their fortunes for the defense of the liberty of this nation. Well, less than a century later, the, the nation had gone from 13 states to 34 states and there was, among these 34 states, great division. It was anything but united as 11 southern states sought to secede from the Union, leading to the Civil War and the death of over 600,000 Americans, both in the North and the South. It was during this time of hostility that Abraham Lincoln famously quoted Jesus from Luke 3.25 when he says, A house divided against itself cannot stand. Now here we are 150 years from the end of the Civil War, and I don't think it's anything controversial for me to say that 150 years later, these United States are anything but united. We are the divided states of America. Divisions have deepened. 
Factions have increased. Polarization has abounded, particularly over the last three and a half years. And you don't have to be an astute observer of culture to see that this division and disunity and dissension has slithered into Christ's church. This is, therefore, a section of Scripture that I believe is incredibly timely for us today, particularly the last paragraph we're going to consider this morning. What Jesus prays for his disciples, what Christ prays for his church. Now, the chronological context of this paragraph we're going to study. If you look in your Bible at chapter 18, which, Lord willing, where will be next week, the heading in my Bible says this, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And so this is literally the last paragraph of the last prayer Jesus prays before the cross. And so with that context, the intensity and the gravitas is weighty. So look with me in your Bibles at John chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 20 to the end of the chapter. This is the inspired word of God. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is, as we've been studying over these three weeks, a profound prayer. But this is so much more than simply a prayer. This prayer of Jesus that they heard and that John has recorded for us contains some fantastic doctrinal and theological truth about God, about Jesus, and about the nature of our relationship with him. In fact, there's a couple of claims that are profound that I want to point out. If you look up in your Bible at verse 3, Jesus taught us the definition of eternal life. What does it mean to have eternal life? He says in verse 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Last week, when considered among many verses, verse 17, which in a, a world where uh, people are saying truth is relative, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, Jesus says something completely contrary to that sentiment in verse 17. He prayed, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. In a culture that says it's relative, this is a profound statement. Now, many Bible scholars and theologians and pastors and Bible students come to chapter 17, and as you study it deeply, it's almost a sense that we might ought to take our shoes off because we're on holy ground. This is profound that we get to listen in 
to the communion and the conversation within the triune God. Now, I've entitled this message, How Jesus Prays for Us. And I intentionally put that in the present tense. Instead of how Jesus prayed for us, I said how Jesus prays for us. Because although this is a prayer in the past tense that Jesus prayed some 2,000 years ago recorded for us, you need to know, brothers and sisters, Jesus is still praying for us today. And if you want to know what is Christ praying for us, read John 17. This is how Christ is interceding for us. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, the Bible tells us this, that consequently he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is called the great high priest. And this is his high priestly prayer. And this is how Jesus is praying for them then and how he is praying for us now. And that's why I also said how Jesus prays for us. Because I don't know if you know it or not, but if you're a Christian today, you are specifically mentioned in the Bible. Did you know that? You're mentioned right here in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that's the 11 who are gathered there with him, but he's also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Uh, just a show of hands, have you believed in Jesus through the word of the apostles? Anybody here today? Jesus prayed for you here. Is that fascinating? I think it's fabulous. Now, this concept of believers being prayed for by Jesus and Jesus looking in his omniscience through the centuries, through the millennia, and praying for us today, this is not the first time that Jesus has inferred that there will be many, 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 many more who believe in him beyond this first century following. In fact, all the way back in chapter 10 of John's gospel, as we find the good shepherd discourse there where he reveals himself as the good shepherd, notice what Jesus prays for or mentions in verses 14 and following. He says, I am the good shepherd, shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Watch this. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. From the very beginning, Jesus understood the Abrahamic, the Abrahamic covenant, which says that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by one of his descendants, by one of Abraham's seed. Jesus understood that he was the fulfillment of that promise. He was the fulfillment of that covenant. And all the nations of the earth will become one flock under one shepherd. Jesus prayed for us. And as you think about the fact that this great church has spanned the centuries and it spans the globe it is a church where the word has been proclaimed, which has brought about the expansion of the kingdom. Let me say that again. The expansion of the kingdom throughout the, word has been, throughout the world has been accomplished through the proclamation of the word. Which leaves me scratching my head a bit when I get mailers and emails and messages from supposed church growth specialists who suggest ways to grow your church that have nothing to do with the word. Gimmicks and gizmos 
methods and marketing strategies. If this church would grow, it will be when our D groups and our small groups and our Sunday school classes and our youth ministries and our children's ministries and our preaching ministry are all about the word. The word. In fact, this is what Peter said, who was here in his first epistle. He put it like this. You and you and you and you and you and you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through what? The living and abiding word of God. So Jesus is praying forward throughout the centuries for those who would be born again by the living and the abiding word of God. And he's praying for us today. He's praying for us. Well, how is Jesus praying for us? I want us to consider three ways that Jesus prays for us in this passage. The first one is this. He's praying that we would express the fellowship of his unity. He's praying that we would express the fellowship of his unity. We were introduced just almost in passing last week in verse 11 to Jesus praying that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. But now here in this section of the prayer, he further expands and elaborates on this fact. In fact, the bulk of this message today will be on this subject because the bulk of the passage is on that subject. When considering this concept of church unity or unity among Christians or unity worldwide among disciples, there are some who point to the plethora of denominations that exist out there and say, ah, we have no unity. If, if Christ's church was unified, we wouldn't have all these different hundreds. That's just a sampling. Hundreds of supposed denominations that exist out there. They think this idea of denominations opposes Christ's prayer for unity. So what do we do? How do we have a unified church? Well, the Roman Catholic Church has the answer. We are the one true church. The only answer for, for unity in Christ's church is if you have one institutional, hierarchical, governing body, this visible church. Of course, if we look at the church in the New Testament, it doesn't look anything like the hierarchical, institutional church of Rome. Rome insists that Peter was the first pope. And that authority over the other apostles was conferred upon him by Jesus Christ. And that every pope in succession from Peter has that same authority over the church and has the conference of infallibility. Is this what we see in the New Testament with regard to Peter? No, it is not. Even after Pentecost, after the expanse of the church began, Peter fell into some theological error which moved into ministerial error. What was that? He began to show favoritism and preference to those who were circumcised Jewish Christians over uncircumcised Gentile Christians. And so you, you know what happened? Paul tells us what happened in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and following. He tells us that he confronted Peter to his face. He says, hey, what you're doing is wrong. You're showing favoritism to these Judaizers. I sometimes imagine, and this is just conjecture, that when Peter and Paul ended up in heaven after both of them were martyred, that Peter should have said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm glad you confronted me in, in my wrongdoing and my rebuke, but did you have to write it in the Bible? <laughs> Actually, yes, he did. 
so that we could see there is not a hierarchical structure in the church with an infallible pope. No, there's not. In fact, what's worse, if you peruse church history, what you will discover is the worst periods of church history occurred when there was the strongest institutional unity. The worst periods of church history occurred when there were the strongest periods of institutional unity. The Middle Ages in Europe, for instance, the gospel light was virtually extinguished in the world. And you had the church doing things in the name of Christ that were anything but Christian. The conquests to the new world, the inquisitions, these practices were wholly unchristian, yet they occurred during the strongest hierarchical unity of the church. So what are we to understand about this unity of which Christ prays for us and for his global church? How are we to understand it? It's not the erasure of these so-called denominations into a worldwide ecumenical body. There are some marks that we can see from this passage. I want you to consider three of them. The first thing about this fellowship of unity is it is mystical. It is mystical. And by that, I mean it is not institutional. The unity that Jesus describes should be evident in his people. And it's the same kind of unity, Christ says, is the unity that exists within the Godhead. Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's why I describe this as mystical. Can anyone here explain to us the nature of the Trinity? Of course you can't. It transcends human comprehension. It is beyond our capacity to understand. And I've said before, I'll repeat it. If God was a God you could wrap your mind around, that would not be a God worthy of your worship. But because God is transcendent, because he is beyond our comprehension, he is a God worthy of our worship. And this idea of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect relational communion together, this communicates that, that this is a mystical reality. And Christ anticipates that the relationship within his church would also go beyond the boundaries of human understanding. I prayed about this at the beginning of our service. We are a congregation of diverse backgrounds, diverse histories, diverse experiences, and somewhat diverse ethnicities. <laughs> We're a diverse people. We come from different walks of life, and it is mystical that we would come together today, that we would be in one body. The only way that can occur, friend, is if it is a divine work of the triune God. This unity is mystical. Secondly, this unity is spiritual. And that is as opposed to being visible. It's a spiritual unity. Let me ask you another deep theological question. Can you describe how Jesus the Son is in God the Father? And further, how is God the Father in Jesus the Son? 
Well, that's what he says here in verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The answer to this question is very complex. But if we ask the question, how is the Son in us? How is God the Father in his church? That's a little bit clearer answer from the Scripture, namely, through his Spirit. He is in us, and he is functioning in us through the third person of the Trinity, through his Spirit. And that's exactly how Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at Ephesians 4, 2 and following. Paul instructs that church with all humility and gentleness. That's what Wade prayed for. And patience, bearing with one another in love. What are we doing? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Any unity we possess or we have or we display is only through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is not something that can be artificially contrived or manufactured or manipulated. Unity in the Spirit is a supernatural work of God, and it's one I hope you are praying for, that God would do that work among us. But notice, finally, this unity is propositional. It is propositional. And this would be as opposed to this big word, ecumenical. We'll spend a little more time here than we did on the other two. When I say it is propositional, the unity that Christians share, what I mean by that is there are some propositional truths. There are some truth claims that we propose that serve as the source and the guide of our unity. Christian unity is unity in the truth. Notice verse 20 again. Jesus prayed for the unity of those who will believe in me through their word. It's the word of the apostles. It's the word of those that Jesus set aside to establish and be the foundation of the church. The unity Jesus prays for happens and is accomplished through those who believe in his word. Now, the mistake that is commonly made in the larger church world today in what's known as an ecumenical movement is that, well, if we really want to have unity, some of these hard and fast truth claims that we see as being vital and non-negotiable, we've got to start negotiating on some. We've got to start setting aside some things and not being so dogmatic about some things. We've got to set aside some fundamental matters of the truth in order to achieve the goal of unity. And so from this camp, you'll hear something to this effect. Doctrine divides us. So don't be so majoring on doctrine. Now, we tell the truth, and we tell it in love, but we tell the truth nonetheless. We believe in certain propositions from the Bible, and these are the things that unify us. Tell the truth. In fact, the way you can show love the most is by telling somebody the truth. You tell it in love, but you tell them the truth. This past week, I drove through the Wendy's drive-thru to get some lunch, and as is my custom, when I go through a fast food drive-thru, I have a stack of these in my glove compartment, Million-dollar bills. And every time they tell me how much I owe them, I hand my card. They hand me the receipt. I say, have you ever seen one of these? 
This is a million dollar bill. Here's what the cashier said on Thursday. Is that real? I said, if this was real, I wouldn't be at Wendy's. Trust me. So I said, no, it's not real. Have you ever seen one? No, I never have. I said, here, you can have it. Really? Yeah, take it. It's yours. He goes, oh, man, that's awesome. I said, look on the back. There's a gospel message on the back I think you'd appreciate. Well, thanks so much. He handed uh, me the receipt, and then I went up to the next window, and I got my food. That was telling the truth in love. But you know what the back side of that million-dollar bill says? You're a sinner condemned in, for hell. Oh, that's not very loving. Unless you trust in the death of Jesus for your atonement, you won't know salvation. You won't know eternal life. But you tell the truth in love. And you trust God to do the rest. There are some fundamental propositions about the faith that define who we are, and they define our unity. This isn't an exhaustive list, but here are some things about Jesus we hold to as true. Jesus is God all through the Gospel of John. Jesus is the world's only Savior. There is no other Messiah. There is no other prophet. There is no other Savior except Jesus. We believe Christ's death was a substitutionary, in other words, he died in our place, atonement, paying the penalty for our sin. We believe that Christ was bodily, not mystically, not spiritually, but physically bodily, resurrected from the dead, We believe that we are justified by faith alone, not some work, not some deed, not some baptism, not anything, but faith in what Christ has done. These are non-negotiable propositions that we believe. There cannot be Christian unity with any other organization if one of these and some others are denied. You with me? These are fundamental. These are non-negotiable propositions. In fact, It is faith, faith in these fundamental propositions of truth about Jesus that Christ actually anticipated would form Christian unity. And it's from our belief in these fundamental ideas about who he is and what he's done that would actually foster future Christian unity and the expanse of the kingdom. Not once, but twice Jesus prays in verse 21 and 23, he says this, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may believe, that's a faith, that you sent me. It's always been that those who are united around the gospel are the ones who have the greatest impact. The ones who are united around the fundamentals of the faith that have turned the world upside down for Christ. So a church that adorns the gospel message with deep love and fellowship and support for one another, this is what commends the gospel to a watching world. And Christian, as we pursue this ideal, we cannot lose sight of the fact that, one, it is Christ's work that unifies us, his death, burial, and resurrection, It is Christ's spirit indwelling within us that causes this unity. And it is Christ's intercession, his prayer. Jesus is praying for us now. Is that awesome? He's praying for us now. So how does Jesus pray for us? He prays for us that we would express the fellowship of his unity. Here's the second way he prays for us. He prays for us that we would be a people who experience the foundation of his glory. 
that we would be a people who experience the foundation of his glory. This is what he prays in verse 24. Look at it again. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There have been multiple occasions throughout my 30 years of ministry that troubled folks have come to me and said, I just don't know if I'm saved. Or maybe they've said something to this effect. They've asked the question, how can I know that the faith I have today I'll have in the future? If there's trouble or difficulty or hardship or persecution, how do I know that my faith will not be shaken by these tumultuous troubles that come our way? Here's what I know. Looking within ourselves will never bring assurance of faith. Looking within our own motives, our own decisions, our own will, our own capacity, our own work, looking within will never bring assurance of faith. But if we listen to Christ's prayer on the night of his betrayal and arrest, friends, that brings great assurance. Again, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. I want you to circle on your outline in verse 24 that word desire. I desire. That's really not the best translation of the Greek word underneath there. Sometimes when we hear the word desire, we think of this wishful intent. I I really desire it. I really wish it would happen. That's not what the word here means. In fact, the King James Version actually has the best translation. I will (laughs) that they also whom you have given me may be with me. It's they will, not wish. I purpose, I determine, they will be with me, everyone that you've given me. This brings assurance, doesn't it? This is called perseverance of the saints in theology and in doctrine. Our assurance of salvation, our hope for eternity, our belief that our faith will not fail is not anything we do or have done. It's what Christ's promises in this prayer. I desire, I will, I purpose, I determine. Everyone you've given me, they're going to see me in glory. What great hope. What great confidence. And again, Jesus is praying, not just for the 11 here. These 11 disciples, they're going to be with me. He's praying for you, for glory. As he's praying for these 11 who will see his glory, he's looking beyond that moment. He's looking beyond even the cross. He's looking beyond the burial and the resurrection and the ascension. He's even looking beyond 2,000 plus years of church history. What's he looking towards? This glory. He's looking towards the promise that he has made that he will return again that he will come again, and that he will set all things right, and he will establish his kingdom. Where is he looking when he says, so that they may be with me where I am? He's looking at when all the believers throughout all of history, throughout the earth, are gathered together, joined together, one flock, one shepherd, one kingdom. We know that's what he means because he says as much. He says that they would see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's making reference here to something that he already mentioned at the beginning of this prayer. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. In verse 5, Jesus prayed about having glory. What kind of glory? Look at verse 5 again. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence 
with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now he's praying about the glory that was there before the foundation of the world. What's he talking about? Well, the disciples, those 11 who were there, they'd seen Jesus' glory. I mean, they'd seen the miraculous works. They'd seen the incredible healings. They'd heard the fantastic teachings. They'd seen glory. That wasn't the glory he was talking about. They would see and understand later the glory of the cross. They would then see the glory of the resurrection. And 40 days later, as he ascended up into heaven, and they're just standing there looking, they saw the glory. But this is not the glory Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the same glory he had before the world existed, the same glory that he existed in before the foundation of the world. He says, I want them to see that full, unfiltered, unveiled glory. And he says, they will. What happens when you get to see that glory finally and fully? What happens to you? Well, John, who wrote this gospel account, tells us what will happen. In his first epistle, chapter 3, he says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. How is he? Glory before the foundation of the world. And John says we'll be like him. What does it mean that we'll be like him? Will we be like him and that we're going to become gods like some false cults believe? No. We will be like him in the sense that we will be fit for eternity. We will have bodies that never wear out. We will be fit for the glory that we will experience forever and always. Now, here's the burning question of the morning. How can you know that you will experience that glory? How can you know and be assured that you will experience the glory for which Jesus has prayed? How can you face death? Death is a very real enemy. Some of you have experienced it this week. How can you know that when you face death, you will face Jesus in glory and be like him? Here's the answer. Look at this next slide. You can know that you will be glorified with Jesus, if, that's the condition, you glory in Jesus now. Do you glory in Jesus now? Do you glory in who he is? Do you glory in what he has done? What does it mean to glory in Jesus? It means to believe those fundamental biblical propositions I mentioned earlier. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he lived a perfect life and was tempted in every way as we were tempted yet never sinned? Do you believe that Jesus is the substitute, the one who died in our place, taking our place for our sins? Do you believe that Christ has been bodily resurrected from the dead to provide new life to all who trust in him? Do you glory in Jesus now? If you don't know the answer to those questions, here's what I'd encourage you to do. Just simply pray this prayer. And I'm not gonna pray some kind of sinner's prayer. Here's the prayer I want you to pray. God, open my mind to understand. God, move in my heart to repent of my sin and selfishness and self-rule. That's the prayer you need to pray. God, work in my life the power of your conversion that I would be born again, as Peter said, of imperishable seed. And I'm gonna trust 
the Spirit to do that work, not some preacher's words. You pray that prayer. Lord, move in my heart repentance. The prayer of Christ for his people is a prayer that we would express the fellowship of unity, that we would experience this foundation of his glory from the foundation of the world. But thirdly, that we would extend the fullness of his love. He prays for his church and he prays for his people. Present tense prays for us that we would extend the fullness of his love. Look again at the last two verses of this prayer just before the cross. He prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, henna, this is that henna clause, a purpose statement, in order that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's a common theme here with regard to the unity that we're supposed to express, the glory that we would experience, and then finally the, the fullness of love that we would extend through us. And it all comes around to knowing God and knowing Jesus, his son, that they may know you, that they may know you. True Christian unity comes from affirming and believing who God is as he's revealed himself to be in the Bible. And true Christian love is the same way. We have and we experience and we know and we extend true Christian love by believing authentically. In fact, look at this next slide. Authentic Christian love is the result, the consequence of knowing and believing rightly. Again, this is contrary to what some would say. Doctrine divides. Theology excludes people. You can't really love others if you have these non-negotiable propositions about God. But Jesus highlights something particularly here that I want to point out. Last week we saw that Jesus referred to God as Holy Father. And I told you then, last week, that's the only time this specific title for God is used in the whole 66 books of the Bible by Jesus. Holy Father. Well, here there's another exclusive title that Jesus gives to God. He calls him Righteous Father. Only place in the Bible that adjective is used for God as a title. Righteous Father. What does this mean? You see, the world in their presuppositions about God does not see God as righteous. They see him as something of a absent-minded, grandfatherly figure. Oh, those humans down there, look at them. Humans will be humans. God is righteous. That's how Jesus refers to him here. Righteous Father. When our doctrine deepens, when our understanding of God expands and grows, we see what God has done as righteous Father. He extends to us his righteousness. And when we see that, we see it as love. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. For God demonstrates, he displays his own Love for us in this, that while we were sinners, unrighteous, Christ died for us. 
And in his death, he gives to us his righteousness. He uh, imputes to us his goodness. This is indeed loving. And when we come to deeper understand that, we will then extend that love into the world in which we live. I would remind you one last time about this prayer. This prayer occurred just before the arrest and the crucifixion. Here it is in chapter 17, and this is the conclusion of what we've described as the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse began all the way back in chapter 13. Chapter 13, what happens? Jesus told his disciples, go find an upper room and prepare for us to share and celebrate the Jewish Passover meal together. And that's exactly what they did. Chapter 13, they got together to share the Passover meal. And it was at that Passover meal that Jesus instituted the very first communion meal that we're going to celebrate today. But I want you to notice what John, the author of this gospel account, says about Christ as he's instituting this new covenant meal. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. The whole upper room discourse begins with this declaration of the deep, deep love of Jesus for us. Four chapters later, the end of the upper room discourse concludes chapter 17, verse 26, with the love of God for us. The upper room discourse is bookended by two declarations of the greatness of God's love. Is this not glorious? Is this not beautiful? Jesus is praying for them, and Jesus, friend, is praying for you. And so as we come to this time of Response as we come to prepare in this love feast. That's what this is. It's a communion meal where we remember and we reflect on the great love of Christ. Do so remembering that even right now, Jesus is praying for you. And he's praying that our unity would be expressed. He's praying that glory would be experienced and he's praying that love would be extended in us and through us to the world in which you live. Would you trust Jesus today to do that work? And that leads to my last thought. Christian, Christian, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you.